honest and to be transparent. Uh, your preacher has a problem with speeding. Actually, no, I, I do it really well. It's not a problem. I have no problem speeding whatsoever. It's, but it's an issue that I am working on. And after having been pulled over a few times and never given a ticket until a couple months ago, I, I finally got my ticket. And, and uh, I, I realize now that we have moved to Redmond, it's going to be a whole lot easier because I don't have to go down the, the, the parkway anymore coming up from Sun River. And, and, and that's usually where, where I get in trouble. But, but I do have, and this is not to condone anything or to, or to celebrate uh, my <clears throat> sin, uh, but I do have, a, I do have a, 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 a situation that I just kind of fantasize about thinking, you know, this would be so cool. This would be so cool. If, if I had blown past a cop uh, and the, the cop had been sitting there for the most of the day and people saw him and, and slowed down and so it was a slow day for him and, and I would blow past him and the lights would come on and pull me over and he'd walk up to the car and say, well, I've been waiting, I've been waiting all day for this and I'd tell him, well, I got here as fast as I could. <laughs> Some of you, when you hear the fact that we only have two more Sundays in the book of Acts, you're saying, finally, and I'm telling you, we got here as fast as we could. By the way, we've gone just through it in a year. In one year, what we've gone through actually took about 30 years in real time. Uh, we've looked at the, uh, the history of the early church and the power as worlds collide to change this world over the course of 30 years. Uh, to, to be brief, with an overview, we started in AD 30, where the book of Acts begins after the resurrection of Jesus, as he promises the Holy Spirit to come into the, the believers. Ten days later, day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit does come and indwell the Jewish believers. Peter then preaches the first gospel message, and 3,000 people put their faith in the risen Christ. By the very next year, A.D. 31, the church has grown to 5,000 people plus as the message with miracles is beginning to be shared. In 34 A.D., uh, the deacon, Stephen, is the first casualty of Christ, the first martyr. The church is then scattered from Jerusalem to other parts of Judea and Samaria. One of the persecutors of the church, a guy named Saul, is on his way up to Syria and is confronted and converted by the Lord Jesus himself. He's transformed from persecutor to preacher. He would become, uh, he would become, ah, I, I had a problem with this the first service as well. He would become to be known by his Roman name, Paul, and would be one of history's most effective and efficient missionaries. In AD 38, Peter then gets a vision in regards to the inclusion of Gentiles into God's kingdom, and that then paves the way for Paul to evangelize the Gentile world. AD 46, about 12 years after his conversion, Paul is sent out from the church of Antioch uh, with a man named Barnabas into Asia and, and, and uh, other parts of the Gentile world on his first missionary journey. Churches are planted in the region of Galatia. And by 49, uh, Paul is able to send a, a report back to the central church in Jerusalem. 
And it's there that they accept the Holy Spirit coming upon the Gentiles as well, including them in the movement of God. Two years later, A.D. 51, Paul goes on a second missionary journey where churches are launched in Philippi and Thessalonica and Corinth. A.D. 57, Paul travels back to Jerusalem, is arrested and held prisoner until A.D. 60, 30 years after it all began, when he gets on board a ship bound for Rome. And that brings us to this morning, where we are at the second to last sermon in the series on the book of Acts. We have seen the story of the mission of God as it started small, like, like a, a mustard seed. And it exploded, multiplied beyond what anyone would have ever imagined possible. It's a story made up of smaller stories of faithfulness versus unfaithfulness, uh, of opportunities and, and obstacles, uh, of, of difficult circumstances that are wrapped up in the sovereignty of God. Every story woven together into a bigger story with the consistent themes of the, the rule and the reign of King Jesus, the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, and the kingdom of God coming in power through the people of God organized as the church. We went from 120 followers in Acts chapter 1, there in Jerusalem, to literally hundreds of thousands of believers throughout the known Western world in Acts chapter 28. This morning... I want you to see that it's more than just history. It's more than just a, a great adventure. In, in fact, I believe Acts chapter 28 is actually a fulfillment of a promise that Jesus made to us. You, you see, he told his disciples that they would be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And Rome, now, Acts chapter 28, as Paul gets to Rome, Rome is truly the uttermost part of their world, but it's also quite literally the gateway to the rest of the world. You, you, you've heard the old saying, all roads lead to Rome? Well, guess what? Roads go both ways. And all roads actually lead out of Rome as well. So by the time we get to chapter 28, we actually have seen that the Great Commission that Jesus gave to us is attainable. It's a guarantee of sorts because God gave us a mission. And because of what we've read this whole year through the book of Acts, I believe that this shows us as God's ambassadors, we are guaranteed to succeed. We are guaranteed to succeed. Now, I don't know about you, but there's not a lot in my life that has a guarantee for success. I mean, people say, well, you know, when you're going to school, you know, if you get good grades, if you're able to be in the right clubs, if you do the right extracurricular activities, then possibly you might have an advantage over somebody else in going to a good school. But is that really a guarantee that you're going to get into the right school? Or talking about your career, you know the right people, you've gone through the right tests, you've gone through the right training. Is that a guarantee that you're going to get that job or keep that job? Are you guaranteed love and your marriage to last your entire adult life? Are you guaranteed that as long as you live by certain principles, your kids will never mess up? 
will never walk away from the faith? Are, are we guaranteed any of those things? See, see, when we look at guarantees in life, there's not a lot of guarantees out there. Some of you know what it's like to put your effort into those things just to watch them fail. But without a guarantee, we're left with a sense of uncertainty and, and doubt. Uh, sometimes even cynicism creeps in, and, and that prevents us from actually having a confidence to go out and do what is necessary. Uh, people tend to shut down when they get cynical about what is out there for them. Uh, and, and so I wonder, as a preacher, if that's actually happened with our efforts in fulfilling the Great Commission. Um, when it comes to sharing the gospel, like Jesus asked us to do, is it because that we don't have the right training or the right techniques that we don't obey the Great Commission? Or is it something else? Is it really a lack of know-how, like, like we don't know the gospel? Or might it be something else, like a lack of confidence? See, that's what I, I think most of us would land, was we, we know what the gospel is. We just don't have a lot of confidence to get out there and obey what Jesus wanted us to do. You, you know, Costco is successful in, in large part because there's consumer confidence in Costco. Why? Because you buy something from Costco, guess what? You, you can take it back. You've you got a money-back guarantee at, at Costco. I, I had a friend who used to do that all the time. Uh, would get TVs. This is not me. Don't get mad at me. Would get a TV, watch the Super Bowl, then return it. Get his money back. Yeah, I know. I, I know. I know. But there is a money-back guarantee, and it instills confidence in, in places like that. I, I wonder, I wonder if, if maybe the church should not have this guarantee from God that gives us this consumer confidence, confidence to stay rooted in what Jesus wants us to do in the Great Commission. See, I, I believe in Acts chapter 28, we see four key things that I believe that we can have confidence in in fulfilling the Great Commission. If, if we're going to be obedient to what Jesus wants us in, in our life. So first of all, we must be confident, I believe, in our connection with those who need to hear the gospel. Now, in my ministry experience, uh, those who are on fire the most about Jesus, the, uh, the, they're most excited to share the gospel, they, they, those tend to be the ones who just gave their lives to Jesus. It's fresh. It's new. It's exciting. That they've, they have this newfound connection with God. That they have this love of Jesus and they can't keep it inside. But there's a story about a missionary doctor who had removed cataracts from the eyes of an old Chinese farmer. A few days later, though, the, the doctor looked out of his window and noticed that same farmer approaching. He's holding the front end of a very long rope. And in single file, holding on to that rope was a long line of blind Chinese men who had been rounded up and led for miles to this doctor who had worked a miracle in this Chinese farmer's life. See, people who have been recently saved, they, they still maintain this connection with people who are lost. That's why I believe they're so effective, because they know what it's like, like the, this healed Chinese man. They know what it's like to be blind and then to see. And so they're excited to bring other blind people to be healed as well. 
But something happens over time. Over time, something tends to happen to our fervor. In my experience, what happens involves other people shutting you down. You're excited. You want to tell them. You want to invite them. And yet they keep telling you, stay away from me. I don't want to hear this. Not everyone responds with excitement to a new believer. It's not too long before rejection of the gospel is kind of transferred to a feeling of personal rejection. Like they're actually rejecting you, not your message. And so we, we tend to be, ouch, I, I don't like to be rejected. So, so I'm going to do whatever I can not to be rejected. And I'm not going to put myself out there like that anymore. And we lose confidence in the connections that God has given to us. That's what I love about Paul here in Acts 28. Well, look at verse 17. It says, three days later, Paul calls together the leaders of the Jews. That's important. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, my brothers, that's important. Although I have done nothing against our people, that's important. Or against the customs of our ancestors, that's important. I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. Now, if you've been with us, over the, the course of the last few months, you probably have picked up that uh, the Jewish community has not been overly receptive to Paul or to his message. They're the ones that are most antagonistic. Out of all the people that Paul encounters, the ones that are most antagonistic are his people, the Jews. So here he is again, inviting the Jews to come and listen to him. Why? Well, because he has a connection with them. He has a a similar ancestry, a a, a similar people. They are his brothers. See, Paul has been rejected. And if you've been rejected, you might not want to get out there again. But Paul is saying, no, God gave me these connections with the Jews because I know what it's like to be a Jew. I know what it's like to reject the gospel, to be antagonistic towards the gospel, because that's what Paul was in his past. He's got a connection with these people, and he wants to use that connection to make a difference in their lives. When I was in youth ministry, I used to ask a question to kiddos that I knew that they would have totally misunderstood. They they would totally misunderstand. I'd ask, how many of you actually hang out with non-Christians? And, and they didn't want to actually raise their hand if they did because they, they figured that they were going to be yelled at by the youth pastor for hanging out with non-Christians. And I'd say, really, seriously, none of you, none of you have any non-Christian friends? Really? Then get some, I would say. Get some. It's like, whoa, whoa, you, you're telling me that we're supposed to have non-Christian friends? Hey, listen. Monks of the ancient world, they, they would isolate themselves because they thought that that would keep them holy. And it may have kept them holy, but it also kept them ineffective as witnesses for God's kingdom. Folks, if, if we don't have non-Christians that we're hanging out with, if we've insulated ourselves from the world because we'll only hang out with Christians... We'll only listen to Christian music. We'll only go to to Christian businesses. We'll only drink milk from a Christian cow. If that's the way we're going to live our lives, guess what? We have zero chance of fulfilling the Great Commission. 
You know, God has put you very uniquely in your circle of, of acquaintances and friends and coworkers. You have a connection with people that get you and that you get. So as a Christian, though, have you started to shy away from those connections? Or, or have you realized that you've got an amazing opportunity to cultivate those relationships so that over time, God can use those connections for you to help sow a seed of the gospel into their lives. Remember, we're guaranteed to succeed. Second point, we must also be confident in our intercession. Now, that's a big theological word, intercession. But basically, it means to stand in the gap for somebody else as you pray for them. We have been called, as Jesus' disciples, to be a priesthood, a royal priesthood. And a priest is one that is the go-between between mankind and God. And, and though Jesus served as the ultimate bridge between man and God, by being His people, we have been called to intercede for others as well. Now, we were just talking about this at Men's Bible Study on Wednesday nights. Uh, we were talking about prayer life, and Jesus said, ask whatever you want in my name, and I will give it to you. And we started to, to, to dissect that, and to, to look at what that means. Um, so let me ask you this. When you pray, are you asking God to help you build your kingdom? Is that what your prayer is all about? Or are you asking God what you can do to help Him to build His kingdom? You see, once we start to realize that it's about God's kingdom, then we can ask whatever we want for that. And guess what? He's going to give that to you, whether it be a healing or, or special favor or what, what not. If we are asking for things to, to be put into our life so that we can build His kingdom, I know that God will make sure those kinds of things happen. I, I don't know about you, but I get way more excited to pray for God to work in non-believers' lives than in about believers' lives. Now, now, don't get me wrong. I do pray for you. I love to pray for you. But there's something about praying for somebody who isn't following Jesus yet and watching God do something miraculous in their life so that they become aware of God's presence and His love for them. Paul did this. He understood the power of intercession. A, a year into his imprisonment in Rome, he wrote this to the Colossians. He said, at the same time, pray also for us. He wanted them to stand in the gap for him. That God may open uh, to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Paul is asking these people to be intercessors, to pray for him, to pray for the people that need to hear the gospel. Are you confident enough in your faith in the gospel to change the way that you pray? Are, are there people in your life who absolutely need to hear the gospel? Well, then before you demonstrate the confidence to actually talk with them, would you be willing to pray for them, to stand in the gap, to intercede for them in prayer, that God would prepare both them and you for the eventual engagement? We need to be praying for people who do not know who Jesus is, that God would give us the opportunity and give them the opportunity. So we need, we need to be confident in our connections and in, in, our, in, in our intercessions. But thirdly, we must be confident in our hospitality. 
in our hospitality. Do you realize that repeatedly throughout Scripture, the people of God are commanded to be hospitable? First Peter chapter 4, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, many of you, when I say hospitality, your mind goes to HGTV and entertaining, right? You know, oh, we got well, to get the house ready. We, we got to put everything uh, right. We got we to get the house clean. We got to put out the guest towels. That's hospitality. No. No, that's entertaining, okay? Hospitality goes far deeper because it's not just sharing your home. It's sharing your life with all sorts of people. Uh, the, uh, the strangers. Uh, taking care of widows and orphans. Feeding the hungry. Reaching out to the poor and the foreigner and the refugee. Filling a, a, an Operation Christmas Child shoebox, bringing a box or a bag of foodstuffs, being willing to even love your enemy and treat all of these people like they are part of your family. See, entertainment seeks to impress. Hospitality seeks to bless. I I want you to look at uh, verses 30 and, and 31. This is Paul's life now that he's in prison. It says, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house. See, they made you actually <laughs> pay for your imprisonment. Isn't that great? You're in prison, and now you get to pay for it as well. It's a rented house. And, and, and Paul welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, this would be a level of risk for Paul. Because remember, there are people out there that don't want him alive. Let me tell you, you, as you practice hospitality, there's always going to be a risk to open up your life to other people so that they come into your inner circle, perhaps. But Paul's not hiding, is he? He, He's not hiding. He's welcoming people in. You know, almost four years ago, Pastor Andy came alongside of us here at Powell Butte, and he challenged us not just to be a friendly church, which we were. We always had lovely friendly faces on a Sunday morning, greeting people, welcoming them to our church. But we were not quite yet understanding what it meant to be a welcoming church, a place where we're not just saying hi to people with a smiling face, but where we would actually go out of our way to include people in our life, in our Bible studies, uh, sitting by us in, in, in in the chairs, coming to our home and, and, and sharing a, a meal. There, there's a group here at Powell Butte, a, a group of fairly new attenders who regularly engage with their neighbors and other, and other people, even from the church, over a meal. They strive to show hospitality. Why? So that they will one day be effective in fulfilling their part of the Great Commission as they have built uh, bridges into the lives of, of their neighbors. Fourth point. Because the mission of God is guaranteed to succeed, we must be confident in actually engaging in evangelism. Some of you just got sweaty palms. You don't like evangelism. You don't like actually talking about your faith. But I think this is something we need to get serious about as a church. it's, It's one thing to cultivate friendships, relationships with people who do not know Jesus to build on those relationships to a point where you can begin to share life and opinions and, and be good with each other. But it's another, it's another thing to finally recognize 
when it's time to actually use your words. Uh, I get it. I've been there. We, we love the quote from uh, St. Augustine or whoever said it, that uh, we're supposed to uh, preach the gospel and, if necessary, use words. We, we like that. We like lifestyle evangelism because it means that we don't actually have to engage with somebody in a conversation telling them about the gospel. But folks, most of us here, we know the gospel. And, and, and I would hope that we would by now be able to articulate what it is in a fairly simple way where, where we talk about sin coming into our lives so we need a Savior and how God demonstrated His love by, by sending Jesus to die on the cross for those sins so that we may be right with our God. And, and, and through Jesus, there's the power to overcome sin and death and that's it. But I wonder how many of us could actually say that we have the confidence in the success of the gospel so that we're actually eager to tell that, to engage with people in evangelism. Why eager? Well, because our message is a message of hope. It's a message of, of real, actual, real life change. Go, go back to verse 17 and following. Again, three days later, Paul called together the leaders of the Jews, and when they assembled, he said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me, wanted to release me, because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any charge to bring against my own people. For this reason, verse 20, for this reason I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. Paul is bringing these people in to tell them why he is imprisoned. It's because of the hope of Israel. Does anybody know who he is referring to there? What is it? That, that's, that's the correct answer this time. Jesus is right. Paul, do you see Paul giving an invitation here? He's inviting them to see Jesus as their long-awaited hope. And that, what's beautiful about this is that invitation is dynamic. It doesn't just stay with them. Look at verse 23. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day, and they came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. And from morning until evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Now, not all will get it. Not all will believe Paul. Some got it, some didn't. But his confidence never wavered. Because for Paul, even if only one person got it, the mission was successful. See, we cannot allow fear of rejection keep us from sharing the message. You may actually be surprised in today's day and age, people are actually very interested in about spiritual things, very interested in speaking to you about things that are beyond what we can see and touch and feel. It may be as simple as asking a friend or a neighbor or a coworker about their worldview. Talk about, talk about what's going on in the world. Turns out, turns out that people don't mind telling you what they believe about stuff. They, they don't mind telling you their worldview. Um, 
So the, engaging them in conversation about worldview or, or, or world happenings, that would often lead to deeper topics, at which point you, you might have actually earned the right to talk about your worldview, including how you came to put your faith in Jesus. Have you ever considered maybe asking somebody if they knew that you were a believer? That's, that's an interesting conversation. Say, hey, did, did you know that I'm a, I'm a believer? Did you know that I'm a, a Christian? I mean, that might lead to a different kind of conversation like, well, what, what, how do you perceive Christians today? How, how do you perceive the, the church? What's your attitude about faith? Those kinds of conversations are amazing to have. You might even be bold enough to say, hey, is there something in your life that I can pray for? You see, as those conversations continue, as the relationship begins to deepen, then you can look for ways in which you, you might introduce Jesus into the conversation. Ask if they might be interested in sitting down and talking about what the gospel really is versus the, the, the gospel that they think they know but have been deceived about. Paul asks for an opportunity to sit down with the Jewish leaders here to open up the Scriptures and talk about spiritual things. Why? Because he knows from the Old Testament Scripture he can point out who he believes the Messiah to be. And then he leaves it in their court. That's ultimately how it needs to work, church. We don't have to come up with clever words. We don't have to come up with convincing proofs. Not really. Yeah, there are some people who love to debate, and you might want to be prepared for that. And Mark Mabel, he's got a lot of great ideas about yeah, apologetics, and, you know, and people can talk about that. If, if you want to engage people who want to debate, but not everybody wants to debate. What's the good news is, is some people just want to talk about spirituality, and it's not up to you to convince. It takes a lot of pressure off. It's just, it's just about, about to you. It's up to you to just share your worldview about spiritual things. It's the Spirit's job to convince and to convict. You're just the mouthpiece. And it's God who's going to guarantee the success. You see, it's a partnership that we have been called into. It's an amazing partnership. God calls. John chapter 6, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and then I will raise him up on the last day. See, God is the one who calls. But you know what's fascinating to me? God calls people through you. That's how he calls them. He calls them through us. He calls us to have this confidence in partnering with him as we engage in connection and intercession and hospitality and engagement. Yes, God could have brought the message in any number of ways to this world. But here's our ultimate reality. He chose you. He chose me. He chose us. Why? Because we know what it's like to be redeemed. And so he's given us a message of redemption to bring to a lost world. Right now, I invite the worship team to come on up. And as they do that, my guess is that for those of you who are here, are here this morning and you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ yet, you have not yet gotten on the path of discipleship. You've probably, if you've been around for a, a, a few months even, you've probably, you, you're probably coming up with this, uh, this feeling like this preacher dude wants you to become a Christian. Bingo. 
I do. I do. That's what this is all about. That's exactly what we want for you. Not so that we can boast about numbers or, or, or get more money coming in, but so that we might have the joy of seeing your life change as you pass from spiritual death to eternal life. By the way, that's what God wants for you as well. See, God created you to have a relationship with you. Wanted it so badly that he would give his only son to bridge that gap, to die on a cross so that we may be made right with him again. So I want you to know this morning, if you have never come to faith in Jesus, that you can have that confidence today. That Jesus has come to bring you life. You can have a new direction in your life as you experience Jesus' love. That's what we want because that's what God wants. That's our commission to the world.